0: Passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church, and now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxis. For the last month, our nation has been captivated by the sudden disappearance of Molly Tibbetts a student from the University of Iowa. And as most of you know, this past week her body was found and the man who stands accused of taking her life was taken into custody. Well, nothing can bring her back. Nothing can fill the hole that's in her parents' heart and the heart of her friends and the heart of a nation. We are grateful, though, for there is some sense of closure. There is a conclusion as to what happened to her. We're grateful for the law enforcement officers who spent countless hours following leads, which ultimately led to a suspect's arrest and to finding her deceased body. While Molly's murder was solved, or at least so it seems, The honest truth is that many times when people's lives are taken those murders are not solved many times murderers do get away with taking life many times criminals do get away with stealing many times those who are rich get away with oppressing the poor this morning in our study of the God's Word, we're going to talk about this. What do we do when it seems like people get away with great evil? Is there ever a time when God steps forward and, and, and calls people to account? In our study this morning, we're going to discover that um, we can be very thankful because God is still on His throne. Justice Justice will ultimately be served, for sure in the next life, but God, because he orchestrates history, oftentimes will mete out justice in this life. The big idea of our message this morning is this. It's real simple. God is on his throne. Nobody gets away with anything. God is on his throne. Nobody will get away with anything. And this is, first of all, an encouragement It's an encouragement to those who are going through times of injustice and, and, and oppression. You need to know that ultimately, God does step in. Not only is this message a message of encouragement, it's also a message of warning. It's a warning against sin, that nobody can sin and ultimately escape the consequences. Now, as a church, we have been working our way through the book of Habakkuk. This is a four-week study. Uh, Pastor Jordan did the first two weeks. That allowed me to have some surgery on my elbow and also had some surgery on my forehead this past week where I had a small tumor taken out. But right now, he's on vacation. He's taking his vacation uh, while he is waiting for his wife's um, birth of a third child in their family, and so I'm able to finish out the rest of this series. Before we get into our text in the book of Habakkuk, it's very important for us to remind ourselves of the context of the text of the book of Habakkuk. What is the background of the book? Remember, Habakkuk is a book that was written around 600 B.C., It was written by Habakkuk, who was a prophet to the southern kingdom of of Judah. And um, the southern kingdom of Judah, they're to be God's people. They're to be set aside to worship God. But what's happened during this time is under the reigns of the evil king Manasseh and the evil king Amnon, God's people have walked far away from him. The temple is empty they're involved in the worship of the Canaanite Baals, which is a fertility god. And I'll let you imagine what worship of a fertility god might look like. The people are worshiping Moloch. Moloch's sacrifices demand you take your children and throw them alive into burning fire. Not only have the people walked far away from God in their worship, but they've walked far away from God in their justice system. Those who are doing evil can can get away with murder. In fact, Habakkuk even says that those who are criminals are successfully manipulating the justice system. So the righteous are being oppressed instead of the, the wicked. This is a terrible time for God's people. And the theme of this book is Habakkuk saying, God, can't you do something? Can't you fix this brokenness in our society and community? And God comes back and he says, I can do something and I I will do something. It's just not what you expect. I'm going to bring the wicked Babylonians. They're going to come and they're going to conquer you and take you into captivity. This is like us complaining about the problems in our government and the the problems with Trump and the Mueller probe and the Russian investigation and God can't you do something and he says I will I'm going to bring ISIS 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 is going to conquer your nation and take you captive and just as you and me would say okay God I think you're overreacting a little bit Habakkuk is saying the same thing He said, God, I think you're overreacting a little bit. Bringing in the Babylonians to to conquer us. I mean, we're bad. We're not following you. But the Babylonians are a hundred times worse than we are. And in the first message of this series, we learned that sometimes God uses people more wicked than his people to discipline his people. God still does that today. Last week, as we continued our study through the way through Habakkuk, we learned, as Habakkuk continued his discussion with God, we learned that Habakkuk said, Okay, God, I understand that you're going to use the Babylonians to discipline us for our sin, but what about them? Their brutality is legendary. They are so far from you. Last week, we uh, read a small section in the book of Habakkuk that talked about how uh, the Babylonians uh, take people up like fish on on a hook. And they just never cease putting fish on a hook and pulling them out. And while this is sort of a fishing metaphor, it's actually sort of a historical metaphor. The Babylonians, when they would take people captive, is they would take and they put a hook in their lower lip and they tie that hook to a string or a rope and then they lead them into captivity. Sort of like putting fish on a string. That is the kind of brutality of how they treated their captors. That brings us to where we're at this morning in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 6, where we find that the question has been, well, okay, God, I understand how you're going to discipline your people for their sin, but what about these Babylonians? What about these people who are horrendous and who are evil that you're using against us? What are you going to do about their sin? And this message will help us. What do we need to know when it seems like the wicked are winning and God is doing nothing? What do we need to know when the wicked seem to get away with murder? Murder. Now, as God gives his answer to Habakkuk in this section, he does it by inspiring Habakkuk to write as it is a a song almost. It's called the Song of Five Woes or the Song of Five Taunts. What this is, is it talks about the way God works in this world. The way God handles those who do evil. So we see if you look at Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 6, it talks about how this is a taunt. It says, Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him? In other words, these are five taunts that uh, God has inspired Habakkuk to write to the Babylonians. But these taunts are not just about the way uh, God is going to handle the evil of the Babylonians. But it also talks about the way God will handle those who are evil even today. Let's go ahead and read this passage. It's found on page 768 of your Pew Bibles. It's Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 6 through 20. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him? And say, woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise, and those awake will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them, because you have plundered many nations. All the remnant of the peoples shall plunder you. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You've devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You've forfeited your life, for the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that people's labor "'merely for fire, "'and nations weary themselves for nothing? "'For the earth will be filled "'with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord "'as the waters cover the sea. "'Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink! "'You pour out your wrath and make them drunk "'in order to gaze at their nakedness. "'You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. "'Drink yourself!' And show your uncircumcision. The cup of the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them. For the blood of man and the violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. What prophet is an idol? when its maker has shaped it. A middle image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake! To a silent stone, Arise! Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. And that ends the reading of God's word. Now as we study these passages, as I mentioned, you notice there are five times that the passage says, woe. Five times where there are these uh, curses or promise or taunts that God gives to his people to remember what they need to know when evil oppressors like Babylon seems to be winning at the end of the day. So let's go ahead and work our way through these. The first one is this. Those who steal and oppress will be robbed and destroyed. Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them because you've plundered many nations. All the remnant of the people shall plunder you. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Now remember when this text is written. This is written before Babylon has come to conquer Judah. This is written prophetically about what would or what will take place. About what will be the end of Babylon. The city that is, the country, or excuse me, the people that have come to conquer Judah. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar brought Babylon to his cultural plea peak. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar successfully conquered the known world. Uh, The primary income in the city of Babylon was not trade or, or commerce. It was primarily conquering and plundering. As the text says here, the Babylonians heaped up plunder. They would take conquer kingdoms, conquer nations, and take all of their stuff, bring it to Babylon. They didn't even know what to do with it. They didn't even know where to store it. They just plundered it and heaped it up so they could impoverish the world around them. Not only did they plunder the world around them, but it says they heaped up pledges from the world around them. Now, what are the pledges that's talking about here? Literally, this means the taxes they had on the conquered people. I did some research. From the year 560 to the year 530, we know that the Babylonians charged a 50% tax rate on all the worlds they they had conquered. The goal of this tax rate was to impoverish them. And then to take all their stuff and just pile it up in Babylon, even though they didn't even know what to do with it all and how to use all of it. Now, what does God say about all this conquering? What does He say about all this Babylonian impoverishing? He says this He's watching, He will respond. In fact, he is going to turn the tables so the debtors will one day arise. The nations that have stolen from the, they've stolen from will in turn steal from them and make them tremble. In other words, God is on his throne. Nobody gets away with anything. God will see that there is one day a great reversal for the Babylonians because of how they lived. Now, did this happen? We know that the, the Bab, Babylon was the largest city in the ancient world. It was approximately 2,500 acres. And we, the book of Daniel tells us what um, Nebuchadnezzar's attitude was like as he ruled over the largest city in the world that had conquered the entire known world. Daniel chapter 4, verse 30. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? No pride problems there, was there? God said that he would orchestrate a great reversal. And if you look, God says it will take place suddenly. The Babylon that conquered the world did experience a great reversal. As the kingdom that conquered the world, they only lasted about 100 years. In the year 539 BC, Babylon was conquered by Cyrus, or surrounded by Cyrus of Persia. Daniel chapter 5 tells us what was going on that night. It had only been 22 years since Nebuchadnezzar had handed over the reins of his kingdom. Belshazzar was ruling at the time and even though his nation was surrounded he, he was confident and he had no fear he was actually having a, a drinking party that night I mean why worry his city was impregnable his army was invincible and he had nothing to fear but God had said that because of their greed and the way they impoverished people, that he was on his throne. They weren't going to get away with anything, and he was going to turn the tables suddenly, and that's exactly what happened. You see, the city of Babylon had a massive river that ran through the middle of it. Cyrus, king who was attacking them, diverted the river during the night, and the river went dry. Cyrus's army went into the city under the river gates because there was no longer any water. And in one night, the Persians conquered Babylon. The Babylonian army, when they realized that the um, Persian army had already entered through the city gates, they simply gave up. You see, God says, you think you're going to get away Babylonians and Nebuchadnezzar with impoverishing people, with oppressing people with your greed. God says, I'm being patient. I'm waiting for you to repent. But when you don't repent, suddenly justice will be served. That's not just the way that God works in the ancient world with cities, but that's still the way God works in the modern world with us today. In fact, we find this in Second Thessalonians chapter one, verse six, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. God is watching the greed and impoverishment that sometimes his people experience, and he responds by repaying that. Let's think of this on a national basis. Think of Nazi Germany and the way they lived, who was the one who ultimately saw to it that they were overthrown? It was God. Think of Al-Qaeda and some of the atrocities that they have committed. Who is the one that ultimately saw that they were overthrown? It was God. He gave them time to repent, but eventually justice was served. Let's go to point two. The second woe. Here we learn that God will destroy the future of all who try to leave a legacy built on a foundation of their sin. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You've devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life, for the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Now, the last woe dealt with the greed and impoverishment of the Babylonians. This woe deals with the legacy the Babylonians wanted to leave. The Babylonians, and especially King Nebuchadnezzar, were interested in leaving a lasting legacy. Literally, a never-ending world kingdom. That's what their goal. That's why Nebuchadnezzar conquered the world. And that's why he impoverished the world. In fact, to ensure this, Nebuchadnezzar took the walls of Babylon and he tried to make them unconquerable and impregnable. And that's why he took the money and the wealth of the world and kept it all in Babylon so he could be, not be toppled as it says in the text, it was almost like a bird who placed its nest in a high, rocky peak where nobody or nothing could ever touch it. To let you know about how Nebuchadnezzar built Babylon this way, if you notice on the map that uh, we're going to have up here, you see that Babylon actually had a two walls. There were two close walls. There was an inner wall and an outer wall. The inner wall was brick. It was 21 feet thick. 23 feet away from that inner wall was an outer wall, which was another 12 feet thick. And on top of the wall, every 65 feet was defensive towers. And around the wall was a moat that was 200 feet wide. As the city of Babylon continued to grow, they actually erected another outer wall to be able to expand the city. That was a single wall, but instead of being 23 feet thick, it was 80 feet thick. It had towers 130 feet apart. And it had a 300-foot-wide moat around it, all designed to make it unconquerable, untouchable, to be able to leave a lasting legacy. Now, here's the problem. God is on his throne. The only kingdom that will last forever is the kingdom of God's own beloved Son. How can you leave a lasting legacy? The only way anyone can leave a lasting legacy is by pouring themselves into Jesus Christ. Now, for all this effort that Nebuchadnezzar put into leaving a lasting kingdom, the Babylonians and their kingdom only lasted around 100 years. And as I mentioned, 22 years after Babylon's, or Nebuchadnezzar stepped off the throne, they were conquered by Persia. You see, God is on his throne. Nobody gets away with anything. God overturns those who try to build their legacy on a foundation of sin and injustice. Look what it says in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 18 and 19. Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. And that's what happened to the Babylonians. Jeremiah also prophesied about Nebuchadnezzar trying to leave a legacy and how God promised he would destroy that legacy. Jeremiah 49, verse 16. The horror you inspire has deceived you and the pride of your heart. You who live in the clefts of the rock, who hold the height of the hill, though you make your nest as high as the eagle's, God says, I will bring you down from there, declares the Lord. The irony is that those who oppress people, who have built their, their legacy and, and their kingdoms on their own glory, will ultimately find their own stuff crying out against them. Habakkuk says here that the very stones of your walls and the very beams of your house will cry out against you stolen, stolen were stolen goods. Incidentally, Jesus picks up on this uh, theme from Habakkuk that these very inanimate objects will cry out. Now, Habakkuk talks about inanimate objects crying out about the, the wickedness of the peoples who stole them, but Jesus takes it and he flips it the other way when he pulls this in. And he talks about the very stones crying out about the righteousness of who he is. Look what it says here about the triumphal entry. Jesus says and saying this blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord peace in heaven and glory in his highest and some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him teacher rebuke your disciples and he answered I tell you if these were silent the very stones would cry out you see God is on his throne he will destroy everyone who tries to raise up a kingdom for their own glory and for themselves. Now, the third woe is this. God will destroy all nations, nations built on slavery and injustice. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, it is, not from the, is it not from the Lord of hosts that people labor merely for fire? and nations worry themselves for nothing for the earth will be filled with a knowledge of the glory of the lord as the waters cover the sea ancient babylon was a, a beautiful city it was a huge city but it was a city that was built on the back of backs of slaves see no matter how impressive the city God was not impressed by the city because of the way it was built. It was built on sin and slavery. God would cede to it that all of the efforts to build this beautiful city of Babylon went up in smoke. That all of this work was for nothing. Not because that it was built, but because of the way it was built. The ancient city of Babylon had a population of about 200,000 people. It was the largest city in the ancient world. After it was conquered by the Persians, it declined. And today, there is nobody who lives in the ancient city of Babylon. See, God just doesn't just care what we do, but he cares how we do it. Adam and Eve, when uh, they were told to be fruitful and to multiply, they were actually told to fill the earth. And as they would fill the earth, they would um, build a city in the earth. Because a city is to be the uh, fruition of mankind's uh, decree to subdue the earth. The city is where all the intelligence and the efforts of humanity solidify together for the glory of God. But in Babylon... All the intelligence and the efforts of humanity solidified together to the glory of Nebuchadnezzar. And that is why God promised to destroy it. But you see, there is one city that will last. One city, the Bible tells us, that will have a never-ending kingdom, and it's found in Revelation chapter 21. It's the New Jerusalem. It's the city where God's people all bring their intelligence and their humanity and their effort together to work together for God's glory, not for man's glory. And that is the city that God will not destroy. That is the city that will last. Now, Nebuchadnezzar's goal was to cover the earth with his glory. That's why he tried to conquer the earth. But remember, God is on his throne. He's large in his charge. And nobody gets away with anything. So God saw fit to bring His huh, attempt at world power to an end. And God says the only time that the world will be completely conquered is when the waters cover the knowledge of the glory of God covers the earth like the waters cover the sea. Now let's read the fourth will. Those who shame people and abuse God's creation will experience God's wrath. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Who is this referring to? This is first of all referring to Nebuchadnezzar, but it's also secondarily also referring to all those who act like him. You see, Nebuchadnezzar made his people drink. He would make his people drink to get them drunk, and as he says here, to get them naked. He used his power to abuse his people, to shame his people. And incidentally, the Hebrew here is a little more graphic than just his people getting naked. But his people getting naked is people getting them immoral. The idea is you get them drunk and they'll wake up the next morning next to somebody they've never even met before. And God says here to Nebuchadnezzar, who is using his power to abuse his people and to lead them to shame, I am not happy. Because you have done this, I will judge you for this. In fact, by the way, we find this idea of massive drinking parties in the city of Babylon right in Daniel chapter 5. We read, King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and he drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, he commanded that the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. In other words, after I get drunk, you have to get drunk. And God says, you want to get drunk? You can get drunk in the cup of my wrath. You see, originally, the Babylonians were used as God's wrath upon the world around them. We see this in Jeremiah 51.7. Babylon was a golden cup in the Lord's hand, making all the earth drunken, and the nations drank of her wine. Therefore, the nations went mad. But now, because of the way Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians treated people, even treated their own subjects, now they were going to experience God's wrath. Psalm 75 says, But it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it to its dregs. God promises to destroy those who degrade their people. Remember, God is watching. Nobody gets away with anything. And by the way, God doesn't just care how Nebuchadnezzar treated his people and his subjects, but God also cares how Nebuchadnezzar treated the earth. Here we saw that Nebuchadnezzar had done great violence to Lebanon. Now, what is that? Lebanon is a forest. It's a beautiful, pristine forest. Lebanon was known for its cedar trees, many of which were super, super old, like the giant redwoods of California. In fact, the, the, the Psalms even say that the cedar trees in Lebanon were planted by God himself. They are so old. Psalm 104, verse 16 says, The trees of the Lord are wooded abundantly, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. Now, what did Nebuchadnezzar do to the forest in Lebanon? He clear cut it down. Not because he needed the cedars, but simply because he was a bully and he wanted to destroy the cedars. Now, can we cut down and use wood? Yes, of course we can. But we do it responsibly. Not like Nebuchadnezzar who just mowed everything down for the fun of it. The same thing Nebuchadnezzar did with the animals of the forest. Not because he needed food, but simply for the sport and the fun of killing off all the animals of the forest of Lebanon. He destroyed them. And God is going to hold him account for that. So who can stop Nebuchadnezzar? the world ride ruler who's super, super evil. God. God is on his throne. Nobody will get away with anything. And God is watching the evil that is done on this earth. And he will call people like Nebuchadnezzar, even modern-day Nebuchadnezzars, to account. The fifth point is this, the fifth woe. Those who worship idols trust in their own creation, which is just worthless. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes a speechless idol. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it's overlaid with gold and silver. There is no breath at all in it. But the Lord, he's in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. Now Babylon was a a nation filled with idols. Probably uh, the most popular false god for them to worship was the false god Marduk. Marduk, uh, his temple literally pierced the skyline in Babylon. And the people of Babylon thought Marduk was the one who gave them great victory. And God says, think about this. You think Marduk is the one who gave you victory? Idols, they're just made by craftsmen. You can't make an idol idol. And then call that idol your God? That idol can't talk. It can't teach. It's just wood. It's just metal. As it says in Psalm 96 verse 5. For all the gods of the peoples are just worthless idols. But it's the Lord who made the heavens. You see the true God of the universe is alive. The true God of the universe can talk. He spoke to Habakkuk, and he gave us this book. The true God of the universe told Habakkuk about what was going to happen to the nation of Judah even before it happened. He talked about how Babylon would conquer them, and then he also talked about how he would conquer Babylon. The true God of the universe could give five woes that are very detailed, About how Babylon would ultimately be destroyed. Because the true God of the universe is in charge of history. You know, at times in life, it looks like God is absent. At times in life, it looks like this world is spinning out of control. But we need to know that God is still on his throne, God is fully in control. He has no rivals. The problem is just that we can't understand what he's up to. The problem isn't that this world is out of control. You see, Habakkuk began this book asking all kinds of questions and all kinds of complaint, complaints against God and where is his justice and wisdom in this world. But as he gets closer to the end of this book, he doesn't have questions and complaints against God for his justice. He just stands in silence and trust. You see, he may not be able to understand God's ways, but he knows he can trust God's ways. God is on his throne. Everything on earth happens for a reason. It's all part of God's good plan, even if we don't understand it. Probably the time when it seemed like this world was most out of control is when Jesus was being crucified on the cross. There is the Son of God, falsely accused, having been beat to the point of disfigurement, Dying on a cross. Satan cheered. His demons just screamed with delight. They've killed. They've killed the very Son of Man. Wickedness is reigning. Wickedness is in control. Not really. God was in control the whole time, wasn't he? It was through the death of Jesus that God conquered Satan, sin, and death once and for all and he saved us from our sin you see at that time when Jesus was hanging on the cross nobody could understand what God was up to but the one thing they did know the one thing they could rest in was God had a good plan and God would use it even if we couldn't understand it all for his good and all for his glory Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we thank you that you are on your throne. Heavenly Father, we thank you that uh, nobody gets away with anything, that you have no rivals that are trying to distract you, uh, that are trying to, they can take you and distract you away from your plan. We thank you, Lord, that you don't just serve out justice in eternity, but many times in this life, You see fit to serve justice to those who have done great evil. And we thank you. We thank you that you are large and in charge and that you are good. And we can trust you and stand in silence before you. We ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us and may God continue to enrich your life.